Now, there's four generations of Garrises here. This is the 28-year-old Joe Garrisey. Is that the one he... Something happened. He, I, think, I heard he twisted his, his leg in a gopher hole or something, and they may have fractured it. So they're taking him to a hospital someplace, right? Okay, so let's, why don't we pray for, for him, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity this afternoon that we have to discuss the things of your word. I thank you for those who've given such good attention to so much material and have been willing to have their hearts opened and searched in light of your word. We thank you again that we can do this before the Lord Jesus and all of his matchless grace for all of our awful sin. We pray for Joe Garrisey. We are hopeful that this is not a fracture, that this is not something serious. We pray that they would be able to get him to an emergency room soon. We pray that he would get attention soon. We pray that he would be able to very quickly return to the camp with his family. Uh, we ask, though, that even in this unusual providence that you will use it uh, so that the gospel might be made known to others. Lord, remind us that there's no accidents in your providence, uh, that everything that you do is to conform us to Christ and to see your kingdom extended. And now be pleased to bless our time of discussion, we ask. May all be done unto edification for Jesus' glory. Amen. Um, while others are coming in, let me... I've already gotten two questions that have been submitted. Uh, one actually more orally, the other in a lengthy letter. Um, um, one, of the, one of our uh, campers here had sent me a letter regarding the views of George Washington and the comment regarding his being a deist. Um, I, I didn't bring my history text with me, so for that one, you'll have to give me a little bit of time, but if she'll give me her address, I can follow up on that. But she did have a very very interesting uh, comment, question. It's sort of a comment slash question at the back of her letter. She said, there is a battlefield in the public arena also, and we must not neglect it. A self-proclaimed non-church member wrote, quote, whoever shall introduce into public affairs the principles of primitive Christianity will change the face of the world, Ben Franklin. And I guess the, the gist of the question is, how does this stuff about the war within deal with our role in the public arena? Um, a few quick answers. I'd, I'd urge her and I would urge you um, to get a biography of Wil William Wilberforce. He's one of my, my favorite public figures. Uh, Wilberforce was the one who, over a 30-year period in the 19th, late, uh, late 18th century and early 19th century in England, uh, almost single-handedly stood against the slave trade and was instrumental in seeing the slave trade abolished in England. Now, there's, there were really two big aspects to Wilberforce's life. One was his, his, his own uh, conversion, his own coming to faith in Christ and the agonies over that. Thank you. Uh, his own agonies over that in which, um, as he dealt with his own sin and what conversion was, he came to realize that he had a responsibility in the public sphere as an individual believer. And particularly under the counsel of John Newton, uh, who had a ministry to him, uh, became very influential in the public sphere as a Christian. So what I would say in this is that the, the material, you can't do everything at once, the material we're covering now is really precedes uh, the whole matter of how we work in the public arena. Second thing I would say is 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. Um, some debate about this, but, but arguably Paul may be dealing with these kinds of questions here when he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, um, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, northern part of Greece, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side 
Outside were conflicts. Thank you. Inside were fears. Now, there's an indicator that um, the battle that the apostle fought was certainly not only an inward battle. Um, and even the battle with flesh and blood and principalities and powers worked itself out in the public arena. We don't know exactly what the conflicts were, although there certainly was opposition by the magistrate and others. So the scriptures certainly recognize uh, that there is that dynamic. How then are we to function in it? This would be my third point, Matthew, 5, Matthew 5 and verses 13 through 16. Jesus is dealing in a context of what disciples individually are to be. And this material that we're covering at this camp deals with it. And you know that we are to be light and salt in the world. Uh, holy Christians are light and they are salt. Our problem is sometimes we keep the salt in the salt shaker and it doesn't do much good then. You've got to get it out in the public arena, individual disciples doing that. And light, as Jesus said, doesn't do much good if it's in a bushel basket. So there must be out in the public arena standing for what's right. And so the sister who wrote this certainly brings up a dimension that's not my theme for the conference, but certainly is related to it. What I'm dealing is foundational to it. And I think perhaps tomorrow night's message will touch on some of this in specific ways. Now the second one is one that I've heard in various ways. I actually thought of it myself in, in preparing for last night's message but a brother asked me, it. how do I know if, and I won't mention the particular temptation that he mentioned, how do I know if this is from my own indwelling sin or if this is from the devil? And that's an, that's, I alluded to that last night when I said, you know, it's sometimes hard to know exactly where the dividing line, if there is one, between the world, the flesh, and the devil. We don't want to be those who, uh, whenever there's a problem, always say, the devil did it, the devil made me do it, the devil's behind it. That, that would be aberrant that way. But let's face it, the devil does work in particular ways through the world system and through the flesh and so on. So um, I happen to come across something. This is in Sinclair Ferguson's book, Know Your Christian Life. But he actually quotes Thomas Watson in that regard. I'm glad I brought this. I wondered why I logged about 20 pounds of books up with me. But, uh, you know... I always bring a whole lot more stuff than you can use, but I was glad I had it because actually he quotes Thomas Watson in the chapter of the Christian Conflicts, and I can't really improve on this. Maybe some of you would like to develop it. Or um, He said, the question that's raised, that was raised to Watson as a pastor, how shall we perceive when emotion comes from our own hearts and when from Satan? Now, that's a Puritan way of asking the question we did. How do we know whether it's indwelling sin or Satan? And Watson's response is this. It is hard, as Bernard, who was a, a Middle Ages uh, Christian, it is hard, as Bernard says, to distinguish intermorsum serpentus a morbum mentis. Uh, these guys, that's quite pastoral work, Raleigh. Could you imagine writing a letter to your folks with some Latin in it? No. <laughs> However, for those of us who don't know Latin all that well, it means between the bite of the serpent and the disease of the mind, how you distinguish between the devil's work and what is within us between those suggestions which come from Satan and which breed out of our own hearts. But, again Watson writing, I conceive there is this threefold difference. This is interesting. One, such motions to evil as come from our own hearts spring up more leisurely and by degrees. Sin is long concocted in the thoughts before consent be given. But, usually, we may know emotion comes from Satan by its suddenness. He said, well, where does he get proof for that? Temptation, Watson writes, is compared to a dart because it is shot suddenly, Ephesians 6.16. 
David's numbering the people was a motion which the devil injected suddenly. Two, the motions to evil which come from our own hearts are not so terrible. Few are frightened at the sight of their own children. But motions coming from Satan are more ghastly and frightful as motions to blasphemy and self-murder. Now what I thought was interesting is that the brother that was speaking with me brought up this particular type of assault that came to him. Um, Hence, it is that temptations are compared to fiery darts because as flashes of fire, they startle and affright the soul. Ephesians 6.16. Three, when evil thoughts are thrown into the mind, when we loathe and have reluctance to them, when we strive against them and flee from them as Moses did from the serpent, it shows that they are not the natural birth of our own heart, but the hand of Joab is in this. 2 Samuel 14.19. That's a good Puritan way. You always got to bring some biblical reference in to make the point. Satan has injected these impure emotions. Now, I don't know that I develop it exactly like that, but that is something particularly that Martin Luther and others would deal with. When you have, I mean, these really bizarre, I mentioned to you the other day, um, I, I long ago went through the issues of atheism. I mean, I, I was a professed atheist when I was, in, was in, I was in high school. I know the lunacy of that position. It's just not something that I struggle with day in and day out. And yet, how do you account for the fact that every so often in the study, in the middle of your work, thoughts about atheism will come to your mind and it's almost like you've been hit by a sniper okay so that's maybe some way to deal with that but that those are the ones that were written I wanted to give priority to those Um, are there questions that you would like to ask I'm sure there must be or else you wouldn't be here this afternoon yes sir now give me your name so I know the yes give me your name Eric Eric Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Are you referring to James' text? Yeah, that's a great text. Back in your first question, if it were that important that we knew where those things came from, the Scriptures would be a whole lot clearer on it to us. And since it's hard even biblically to try to discern those things, don't worry about it. And the fact of the matter is a, a temptation is a temptation. But you bring up a, a good point. If you look at James chapter 1, there is a very sobering, not that we need any more sobering after the series, but uh, there's a sobering account of the way sin works. In James chapter 1 and verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. That is part of the glorious righteousness of Christ. People will say, if they're going to argue with you about the Christian faith, how can Jesus be my sympathetic high priest if he never sinned? The answer to that is Jesus understood the depths and the power of temptation more than anyone else because he resisted it without ever sinning. See, when you give in to sin, that's it. You don't, you don't experience the power of temptation anymore. You've you given in to it, I mean, at that point. Jesus knew the nth degree of the power of temptation, but he never sinned, okay? And so he understands all that you go through as you're tempted. Anyway, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he's been approved or tested, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, the Lord is a Lord who tests his people, 
but he does not tempt them to sin. Um, remember that the reason why we are tempted is because of the fall of our first parents, okay? And of course, sin within us. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by. That's the cause. He is literally is drawn out of hiding by his own desires or affections, and he is enticed. Now, best illustration of that, I love to fish. And because I don't... You like to fish, Eric? Yeah, okay. Well, you, you can, you'll get a fly fishing. You won't appreciate that as much as if you use lures. Okay, because when you use lures, the reason why you use the word lure is because you've got a fish who's in a hole or he's someplace off near the shore, and you've got to tempt him in order to come out, and they're not going to bite. That's why you use a lure is because the fish don't want to bite, and the lure is to tempt it. Well, that's the idea here. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by. He's brought out of hiding by his own affections, and he is enticed. There is some bait on a hook for him. Then, when desire has conceived, now that's mixing the imagery, now using reproductive imagery, a desire, as it were, actually, may I use the expression, it has an intercourse with sin. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, like a child in the womb, brings forth death. Now, that is a good picture of exactly the way sin will work, particularly the first part. It will tempt you out of hiding. It will tempt you to go at it. It will have bait. You will bite it. Image changes. And then that is when that drawing away gives birth to actual sin within us. Okay, but do you want to follow that up a bit? Or is that answering a question? Okay, good. Great. Yes? Numbering the troops? Now, I said when I came in here, I was talking to Pastor Keller, and I told him that uh, the easy questions I'll answer and the hard ones I'll ask him because, I mean, he is my senior in the ministry. So so what do you say to that, Rob? <laughs> You're not on vacation. Yeah, oh, thank you. I'll repeat the question. The question is from 2 Samuel 24.1. And the question is, the text as I have it in the New King James says, Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. And then subsequently, David was chastened because he sinned, right? Okay. Um, let, let me just give a stab at it, okay? And remember, this is not one of the texts that I worked on for this. Remember that, that God's providences since the fall are providences that are always related to sin. But God is not the author of sin. 
There's not one providence that God has now that is not in some way, at least with respect to man, there is not, there's no providence that does not, in the decree of God, take into account the sin of man, which is always there. So hence, you have the anger of the Lord aroused against Israel because of its own disobedience and hardness. David was the king of Israel. David also was a sinner. And so God in His sovereignty worked in David who was a sinner so that David would be the instrument of the chastening that God would bring on sinful Israel. But because God is not the author of sin, in the providence of God, however He did that in David's heart, He so worked in him that that chastening would be brought upon Israel as a result of chastening on David for numbering the troops, okay, or for numbering the yeah the troops of Israel and Judah. You following me? Okay, all righty. So David, when now, however God did this. Now, um, how did God harden Pharaoh Pharaoh's heart? God hardened Pharaoh's heart by simply giving him over to his own sin, right? and that's Pharaoh. That's, but God does not have to restrain iniquity in Pharaoh. You know, God can allow a Hitler if he wants. And while God permitted a Hitler to do what he wanted, Hitler was fully responsible for what he did. David had a certain amount of restraint in him prior to this so that he did not number the troops. God permitted David to do that, but David was responsible for what he did, and it was sin. God, as a result, brought work in David so that David made the decision regarding the punishment that would come, and in that way God brought his chastening upon Israel. But, but God is in no way the author of sin. So I think if you keep in mind that God's providences now always are providences that are ordained in the context of sin, it helps you to understand that. And then think not in terms of God's decree, but my responsibility in it. Okay? And remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things of the, long, of the Lord belong to the Lord. That's God's decree. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we might keep the commandments of the Lord our God. That's, that's our responsibility. And I will try to remember to remind the question. Yes, sir. Jerry, right? Well, I had another question, but I'm not going to transfer Yeah, okay. I appreciate you bringing that up. For, uh, let, okay, First Chronicles 21. Now, this is what Watson was referring to. The question is then, how does all of this relate to... 1 Chronicles 21.1, the parallel text. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And this is a beautiful example of how you compare Scripture with Scripture. Jerry, you answered the question for me. How, how did... But before, let, me ask, let me phrase the question part for the tape. How then did God so act that David would number the troops? Okay. Right. Yeah. But the text says it. How, how does, in First Chronicles 21.1, how is it 
that God moved or worked in David so that he numbered the troops. He permitted Satan to in some way bring about that, as Watson would put it, a peculiar assault of the devil. Raleigh, you want to add something to that? Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. You're talking about First Chronicles 21.1? Oh. Now you're going to have to... I didn't bring my Hebrew text. <laughs> yeah. And they, you know, they could have altered that to avoid particularly this kind of question. But, but think of Job, okay? Um, I mean, as a classic example. The Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? And he gave Job permission to do what he wanted for a while, okay? So, so there's, no contra- there's no contradiction. Remember that God is a God of, of, uh, of, ends, of means as well as ends. That's the means he uses. Incidentally, it's a glorious thought in the Scriptures. Remember that how much authority is given to the Lord Jesus? Everything, including authority over the devil. Okay? So even when the devil is permitted to roar and rage, the Lord is even using that to build his church and to glorify Christ. Man, I love that. That's great stuff. Okay? Good questions. Exactly. Yeah, the, the, the thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan and it came from the Lord. Yeah, good. Now, do you see why the popular views of the devil, the Frank Peretti type approach, um, is in which you've got sort of this equal power between the devil and God, wondering how the outcome is going to be, how completely warped that is. I mean, that's not a biblical view of things. That's what makes the devil's ragings even more wicked. He's already lost. Yes, Herman. Okay, we're in Second Chronicles 18. This verse, Herman. Okay. Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord's second... This is Second Chronicles 18.18. 18. Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne and all the host of heaven standing on His right hand and His left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab, king of Israel, to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. And then a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, You shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do it. Right? So the lying, that that messenger was willing to do his work and God permitted him to do it. Right? What's that? Yes, that's right. That's it. That shows even his authority over all these things. Good. I can tell this is an Orthodox Presbyterian crowd. Many churches, they wouldn't even know where Second Chronicles is. <laughs> Old Testament or New Testament? <laughs> okay, other questions? Jerry? Yeah. First Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Are there carnal Christians? 
No, that's okay. That's a, that's a great question. First, Chron- First Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Incidentally, the context will answer the question for you, okay? Um, may I... Let me, let me, before I read the text, let me preface this and, and see, Jerry, if we're on the same la- wavelength with respect to your question. Years ago, uh, Bill Bright had his track, Have You Made the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life? Okay. And I don't know if he's modified it since then. I don't even know if they still use it um, because it was much criticized when it came out in part for this reason. Um, Bright had uh, this picture. It was like a circle with a throne in it. Right. Okay. So if you, if you were a, a disciple or a real committed Christian, Jesus was on the throne of your life. Right. And uh, but if you were, if you accepted Jesus as Savior and not as Lord, there's a throne there. But Jesus isn't on the throne of your life. And what are the evidences of it? Well, you're, there's problems with fornication and drunkenness and, and idolatry and blah 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 blah. Of course, the problem with all that is the Bible doesn't say those are carnal Christians. This is not Christians at all. If that's the case. Um, and you realize. Are you aware of why there is even that approach to things? Now, you've got to stop to think about why people even speak in these terms. Now, any of you who have been in Arminian backgrounds know this very well. You, you know, do you know, Joe, why? Because they're believers and they're eternally secure. They can't lose their salvation, so if they go to carnal activity, they're just out of God. Exactly right. Remember, you've got this whole mindset of people, any of you that have been in these evangelistic crusades, you come forward to accept Jesus, you are given promises from the Scriptures because you believe in Jesus, you're going to heaven, and you don't ever, ever doubt those promises. Right? So now you've told these people, you've trusted in Jesus, you're going to heaven, don't ever doubt those promises. Then the person goes out, and two weeks later, lives exactly like the devil. Wait a minute. What? You just told them, don't ever doubt. Well, you can't take away what you did at the evangelistic crusades or you're going to cut the jugular of your Arminian crusades. I don't want to do that. So you've got to create a category of carnal Christians. And so, and I've heard saints on the shelf. That's a good one. Have you heard that one before? Or if you are Charles Stanley, you can say there is actually a form of purgatory for Christians. Now, how he ever explained that, I don't know, but, okay, so you've got all these little categories. Anyway, now, so, Jerry, that's what you're getting at, right? All right, well, let's look at the text, though, because the text answers the question. You know, it's amazing when you have questions, you look at the text, real carefully, it'll answer it. And first, uh, first Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual, as to those who were godly, mature people, not, that you, not as those not indwelt by the Spirit, but as to those who were mature in the Spirit, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, what do you learn from verse 1? Are these non-Christians? No, these are babes in Christ. They are brethren, but they're carnal. What does he mean? I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. That is, they're not mature in the Spirit. For you are still carnal. For, now watch, where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Now, the answer to the question, Jerry, is this. Their carnality worked itself out specifically in the fact that they were those who were party people. I'm of Paul. I am of Apollos. And in that sense, they were immature people. 
because what they did in taking one teacher, they did not appropriate all of the riches they had in Christ that came through all of the teachers, hence they were immature. So the carnality is not Jesus isn't on the throne of your life and you're living like the devil, but you're carnal because there's divisions among you. And using that standard, American Christianity is very carnal, including much of Reformed Christianity. Right? I am of Calvin, I am of so-and-so, I am of so-and-so. Okay, so that, you want to interact with that? Okay. Okay, 1 Corinthians 3.14 and then 1 Corinthians 10.30. Um, hold on to 10.30 for a minute. Let's look at 3.14. Uh, the question is, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. Now, you, what's your question with that? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Right. Yeah, now that, that's exactly right. You know, hey, listen, just think, folks. You can have all your toys here and still get to heaven, but you just won't get as many rewards when you get to heaven. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to be irreverent, but the smile won't be quite as big from the Lord when you get to heaven. But you still get there, right? That kind of thing. Let me tell you something, folks. That is a complete bastardizing of that whole passage. Let me show you why. Again, look at the context. Let's continue with the passage. Notice in verse 5, notice what Paul is dealing with. He is dealing with the question, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each. Paul now is dealing with the nature of ministers. And my dear brothers and sisters, I don't have a strict three-office view. I believe that there's one office of elder and two distinct functions in the office, but the Scriptures teach there is a distinct role for that elder who is a minister of the Word. When Paul said, we are ambassadors for Christ, he was not speaking of every single believer as an ambassador for Christ. I cringe when I hear that. Who called each individual to officially represent Jesus? That refers now to the minister of the Word who officially represents Christ. As I told the folks in La Mirada Sunday night, all Christians are tourists. A tourist, goes, an ambassador, goes to a land and is an official representative of the king. And so when the ambassador speaks, he officially represents in what he does and in what he says what the king says. That's why a minister in his conduct and in his life better officially represent Christ. Goes to a foreign country, represents Jesus. That's a minister. Now you go to a foreign country as a tourist. You go to a foreign country and you're going to tell people about the wonders of the United States of America. I hope still some wonders left, including the beauty of Southern California. As a Christian, you're a tourist in heaven, in earth. You're a citizen of heaven. You live here. You're going to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of the kingdom. You're not ambassadors. Okay? We've got a few of them in here, but that refers to the minister. Now back to the text. Paul's dealing with ministers, or in this case, uh, some who are apostles. Ministers who but ministers through whom you believe as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase so that neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. He's dealing with those who minister the word of God officially. Now he who plants and he who waters, he's dealing with those who do that work officially, that's the context, are one and each one will receive 
his own reward according to his own labor. Who will receive his own reward? Jerry, you tell me. The ministers. He's dealing with ministers. The, the Pastor Kellers and the Pastor Pontiers and the Pastor Shiskos. Ministers today. Okay, through whom you believe. Now let's go on. For we are God's fellow workers. Not that all Christians don't serve, but we are those... And that's a glorious term. The Lord's work is linked with their work as apostles, now ministers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Who's God's field? Who's God's building? Who is it? The Corinthian church. They're being their church planters. They're building a church. We are, you are. Now, watch who's the subject. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. And another builds on it. Now, you see what he's doing. He's saying to the Corinthians, wait a minute. You don't want to esteem one minister over another any more than you esteem the guy that put in the foundation of your house over the electrician or the fellow that put in the subflooring. They're all one in building your house. But let, now, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. Of whom is he speaking? Who's doing the building? Ministers. For no other foundation can anyone lay. Ministers in their work other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation, of whom is he speaking? Who's anyone? He's not, he's not dealing with all the Christians there. He's talking with official laborers. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. Whose work? The work of ministers. Okay? For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Whose work? The work of ministers. If anyone's work, which he had on your text, if anyone's work, which he's built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. Now, I don't know what that reward is, but he's dealing at this point with those who are servants of the Lord. No question whether they're believers or not, but how did they do their work? Why? Because rewards at this point are based on the service of those who live in this life. And of all the people who've got to be careful of their service, it's ministers. Okay? Then he says, if anyone's work, whose work, ministers, is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And I quite honestly don't know exactly what that means, Jerry. I can't. I'd have to do some work on it. It's been years since I've been in this text. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now he goes back to the people. So what I would say, Jerry, is whatever else this text is saying, it is not referring to believers as a whole. Okay. Now, 10, 10.30, right? 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 30. We're Bible churches too. That's why we're Presbyterians. But. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. Well, you've got a bunch of questions in there. And the question has to do with... So, so let me, I want to try to crystallize this. What you're saying is, for a true believer, is it true that a true believer who abuses his body may very well die prematurely? Yeah, okay, well, that whole other question is the sin unto death and what that is. I think that's probably blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And that's right. And you have to take that exactly for what it says. They were abusing the Lord's Supper. For that reason, many are weak and sickly among you, and some of you sleep. There is that chastening that comes. Um, and, and that does come even with true believers in life. Okay. Right. Okay. Very, yeah, it's a very good question. Okay, so, so the, the question is, if, again, I want to be sure I get it right. The wages of sin is death. Scriptures teach that. The Scriptures say, he who lives according to the flesh will die. Okay. So, and we're not dealing now with unconverted people. We know that's true. They never repent. They die as the wages of sin. But how does this death and sin apply to a believer? Right? Okay. I think, Jerry, I can answer it in, um, say, let's say, three different ways. Okay? One, a believer can sin in foolishness. And just because of the way God has ordered things, a life may end quickly, but the person still be a Christian. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, that you might live long on the earth. You have a four-year-old child. The child has, has a genuine trust in Jesus Christ. Covenant child, you see all the evidences of that. We believe that God will be a God to us and to our children. The child rebels against the parents runs out in the middle of the road and is hit by a car. That child is going to die. Does that mean the child is not in heaven? No. It means the child acted foolishly and there's tremendous pain and sorrow that comes. And it's crass to say, well, the girl or the boy's in heaven anyway. I mean, that's, that's a hurt to the family. Okay, so that's, that's one way to look at it. The second is for a professed believer to live in such a way that the professed believer and a genuine believer is not mortifying sin. And so the professed genuine believer does play around with drugs at some point. And it's a genuine Christian or abuse his body with, with whatever. There's going to be tremendous hurt that comes in that person's life and certain sins might even bring death. Alan was telling me this your exact story, although that man was converted later. Um, a man who had contracted, become HIV positive um, and died an agonizing death, but he was in Christ. Now, when the Scriptures say, whoever, <clears throat> if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. That's why I made the point, it's Paul's, like Paul's saying, now we really live if you stand fast in the Lord. There's a joy in it. And my comment would be, yeah, okay, that person might went to heaven. I wouldn't want to go to heaven like that because my earthly usefulness is weak. So that may happen in a, in a professed believer. And now, a third thing that could happen in a professed believer 
The professed believer may not die prematurely, but the person may, by way of sin, become actually less useful. That's the illustration of a pastor. Or, and now this would be the fourth, a professed believer may abuse his or her body and sin and not mortify sin and die and find out before the bar of God that he or she was not a believer at all. Now, there we're, we're dealing with a spectrum of things. And that's the scary thing. I mean, that's what Jesus gets. When you've got people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do? And Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And that, Jerry, is the scary thing. Okay? Does that... So, yeah. Yeah. Right. Because see, Jerry, look, we're always going back here to the decree of God. God has his elect, and there are ways of assurance. I'm going to deal with this tomorrow. At least a person who sins is going to have assurance weakened. That's why the, the section in the Westminster Confession on assurance of faith and salvation is, I think, the most masterful statement of what the Puritans would call experimental divinity in the human language. It's, it's a masterpiece. Okay, But see, that's not the way we want to live. That's not living. Okay, All right? Is that that uh, did you want to do the all right we did the 10 okay all right now there's a yes joe ernie riesinger's book what is a carnal christian yeah yeah that's right that's still in print and that's a useful thing yeah uh let me see let me see i'm trying to think of the name again martin right yes i'm glad you have your name tag on and that my vision is good enough that I can still read that far, far down the way. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay, the question is, how can we, over time, objectively assess our growth in grace, so to speak? You want to tackle that one, Raleigh? <laughs> that's a great way to put it. I was trying to think. Of, that's good. Oh, Spurgeon pulls it out. Yeah, let me say that one again. Uh, he said, the person who said, I looked at Jesus and the dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked into my heart and the dove flew away. That's, that's a great statement. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Because you know, Martin, I'll tell you, you, you put the microscope. I mean, what have I done over this? This is putting the microscope on your heart over this time. And I, yeah, yeah, you amplify the perfections a thousand times. And it's an ugly picture, right? But it's designed to turn us to Christ. So that's, that's the danger in that, Martin, when we're, when we're looking. I look at my duties and the way I fulfill them. And the dilemma is if I say, hey, I'm doing pretty well, then I write Pharisee on my brow. If I say, oh man, I'm doing pretty poorly, I say, boy, maybe I'm not a Christian, right? Okay, so that's the problem with that kind of approach. And, and, that's, and that's not the way I suggest you do it. Um, and in fact, frankly, I, I'm not real wild about trying to assess my growth in grace. Anyway, I don't know how to do it. You know, I, I, it we, the, the old Heidelberg Catechism 
Uh, Herman, you'll love this. When we have in this life but a small portion of the new obedience, right? And, and I, I think that's, that's so true of us. But, but, but let me suggest something here. Um, and, I, and you've got to be very careful because remember, the devil is real tricky. will become a stumbling stone to you. Um, you ask basic questions about... Um, and you're married, right? Okay, children. Um, is your wife being sanctified under your influence at home? Are you seeing her grow in holiness? Are you nurturing your children in the training and the admonition of the Lord? Are you seeing the fruits of those things? Are you go objectively to the Scriptures? Are you um, replacing patterns of sin with patterns of holiness? I would not keep a journal. And I know Puritans would do it. I'm, I'm really not big on doing this, okay? But this is useful for you, do it. But, um, but, but um, are you finding yourself disciplining yourself in those areas? Now, um, that, that's not to say, okay, here's a chart and this is how holy I am, but it is an encouragement of your growth in grace. Okay? Go, to, go to objective things in the Scriptures and how do I measure up by them? Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's an excellent point, the fruit of the Spirit. Let me give you a personal illustration, Martin, okay? I, I alluded to it the other night. Um, I have not had a problem being a son of thunder as a minister. Uh, my, you know, this Russian makeup and Greek makeup, that's a great chemistry for being naturally a son of thunder. Um, I think my own passionate convictions about things, okay? Um, so when I went through that bout, and it was a difficult bout, I mean, I listened to some of the things I preached early on in my ministry, and I, I regret deeply that I preach, and that's why I'm always hesitant about things being taped, but they're doing it. I mean, I was, I was aghast that I would preach like that. I had to hear myself do it. And I had to have elders who said, you know, Bill, we don't mind you referring to hell, but you do it with tears. Now, God used that to break me, Martin. I mean, I, three days, man, I didn't sleep very much because I thought, you know, I want to stand before the Lord. This text, 1 Corinthians 3, about how I preach. Now, the Lord used the text, the servant of the Lord must not strive. And being a debater, I always had a problem with striving, but I'm not supposed to do that. But be apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves if God peradventure should give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Now, I had to bring myself by grace through faith to that text and say with all the other texts in the Scriptures as a standard, this is the one for right now that's got to be my 12-inch ruler. And so, now by God's grace, I think I've grown in that area. Now, that doesn't mean there can't be outcroppings of sin, what Owen would call sudden surprisals. But I believe by God's grace I've seen growth in that area. Now, there may come a point in my life going on where I find out that the servant of the Lord must not strive means that I am carnally complacent with error. In which case, then I've got to go to the texts that speak of standing for the truth and not bending. Now, that's not, that's not God saying, I don't have a chart that tells me I got an 88 or 75 or whatever. But at least it's a way of, your, of, of growth and grace and a standard you can use. Okay? I've got pa a couple pastors in here as well. So if you fellas want to chip in, I don't mind handing the microphone over to you. Okay? okay? Is that somewhat helpful, Martin? Good. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 
Excellent. I appreciate that. That's a very thoughtful question. The question has to do with some guidelines to do with eating um, because it is not something that we can do without, and yet the Scriptures do condemn gluttony. Okay? Um, and in fact, let's go beyond that. The Scriptures condemn idolatry, and people can make an idol out of food. I mean, you are aware, and this is the opposite thing, you are aware that anorexia and bulimia are really the fruits of idolatry. Uh, people will make idols out of their bodies. They have to keep their bodies at a certain weight right down to the ounce. And, and, uh, and they will, they'll destroy themselves. I was speaking the other day with a man whose daughter is anorexic. And, and this girl literally was at the, at the borders of death and would not eat for fear she'd put on weight. Now, do you see how sin kills? Now, there, there, Jerry's a good example, again, I mean, a, a graphic example of what unbridled sin will do. But the question is some guidelines for eating. I'd go back. Please give me your first name. Diane. Okay, and how's Joe doing? You don't know yet. Okay, they find a hospital for him? Okay. First thing I would do is you work, always work from clear biblical principles. And the biblical principle is in all things moderation. We're to have no excess in anything at all. Other biblical principle, the Lord has given us food and drink and all things freely to enjoy. Whether therefore you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. So you are marshalling from the Scriptures those specific statements that tell you what you do with food. Okay, that's number one. Then number two, you assess all that you do in light of that. If I, if I, um, if I without good reason, simply say, um, you know, somebody, somebody cooks a meal, and I simply say, well, well I'm, sorry, I'm not going to eat that, period. Well, the Lord says you enjoy those things. You say that with children. I'm not going to eat mushrooms. Well, I mean, if it gives them migraine headaches, they don't eat them. But you teach them to enjoy that, okay? You teach them to uh, um, enjoy food in moderation and not to go to excess in anything. And so I think, I mean, I, I might be kind of going far afield in your point, but I would go back to those own basic biblical principles regarding eating and enjoying things and care of the body. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't want to abuse it by any form of obesity. Um, th then also, now here's the other side of it, We've got to be careful not to make idols out of our bodies in any way. Um, uh, doctor a few weeks ago told me that because of a heightened cholesterol level, I had to go on a, a certain restricted diet for a while. And I was obsessed with this thing for a while. I mean, I would just, you know, look on every can. Blah, blah, blah. Well, I guess to a point that that obsession becomes a form of idolatry too. So you want to rein that in. I, I, maybe I'm going far afield in your question. You want to? Is that helpful? Do you want to add to it? Okay. Yeah, I think another thing that I find with ladies sometimes is they'll be very frustrated. And so they'll eat. Uh, they're home, they're around food, and, and they're cooking a lot, and so it's natural that you want to eat. But see, after a while, you've got to learn to say no to that. Uh, but also there's certain frustrations with things, and they'll, they'll, they'll take out their frustrations by eating. Well, then you want to deal with the frustration. Your satisfaction and contentment needs to be in Christ and His glory. That was that point I made this morning about devotion. And when there is that godly contentment, that ought to help push out the drive for food or whatever it would be. That comes with loads of things, not just food. You know, somebody's got to have a cigarette. Somebody's got to have a glass of wine, got to have a drink, whatever it is, okay? Well, if you, you know, if you got to have it, then there's something wrong, okay? Other questions? Yes, Herman. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, First Timothy.
Oh, I'm sorry. The question is, can I give you a text for moderation? Um, okay, in First Timothy. Um, uh, let me see. Yeah, it's one of the ones I was thinking of. That that has to do with a lot. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is thanks if it is used with thanksgiving. But it's um, but that's not dealing with with the issue of moderation in particular. Um, let your moderation be known unto all men. Here we go. Um, verse seven. But reject profane and old wise fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. Now that's not specifically moderation, but it's put yourself in the gymnasium. There's always a careful use of food and drink. Yeah. I'm sorry. First uh, Timothy four seven. Bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise for this life and for the life to come. Uh, there's one that would deal at least with the principle. Raleigh and, and Alan, you want to help me out some, with some others that you can think of on moderation? Second um, Timothy 4. Second Timothy 4.3 You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the worlds. There's the matter again of the discipline of the body, primarily referring to ministers. Um, the texts in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 uh, regarding Christian liberty... 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and, and uh, 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 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 um, let's see I, Herman I'm sorry you, normally I would do this thing with a, with a concordance I, I, verse 27 I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. That's not the word moderation. I mean, you could use a concordance and come up with a with it. And I'm sadly have a little boy. That's where I wish I'd brought my laptop, and I've got these things. But but the the, the language here, <clears throat> I discipline my body and bring it into subjection as I make it my servant. So um, again, if I have to have something. My body is not in subjection normally. I mean, obviously, you've got to drink water, you know, but, but if it, it's something you don't need, but you're, there's that craving. Uh, incidentally, I would, let me add this one other thing. Um, the Bible does not lay down any laws about fasting, and I don't believe the church should lay down any laws about fasting. But it is interesting. Jesus does not say if you fast, but he says when you fast. Now, he also said when you pray. And we don't say prayer is optional. And my personal view is, and I believe I can defend this biblically, is that fasting is one of the means that God uses, among other things, to help us learn to be moderate in all things. It's also a tremendous benefit physically, spiritually, and every other way. Um, I wouldn't bind your conscience by my practice, and, and I don't bind my conscience even by what I try to do, is have one day a week as a day of fasting for prayer and particular devotion to the Lord as much as you can do in a busy ministry. But part of the reason for me is exactly what I said before on that issue of Christian liberty. I want to have personal checks for myself that I know that even though I enjoy my liberties, as I mentioned to you that I do, and I'm sorry if I shocked any of you by that illustration. I hope it wasn't an offense to you. Uh, but I believe those things are biblical. But 
I, I want to be able to know that they're my, my liberty and not my vice. Okay. Yes, I do. And in fact, I have a real problem with saying that Christians are punished because Christians are not punished. Punishment in the Scriptures, Herman, as I see it, um, particularly in the New Testament where the terms are more technical, punishment is a foretaste of hell. Okay. Oh, I see. Oh, I see your question. Okay. Did I say that we're chasing? It will bring chastening if it's an ongoing pattern of sin, is what I said. There's an ongoing pattern of unrepentant sin. And, and what I say from Hebrews 12 is just what you did as a daddy with your children. Um, my guess is with your children, um, when your children did something wrong, you didn't immediately haul off and spank them. I mean, if you told them you are going to spank them, you would. You would probably sit down with your child as they get older and say, now look, we really need to talk about this, blah, 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 and you might be patient. But when there's an ongoing pattern of disobedience, Herman, what did you do with your children? As a good Dutch daddy, what did you do? <laughs> okay, but you didn't punish them. That was discipline of them. That was chastening of them. You did it as a father. And why did you do it? it to draw them back. And also because afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You realize I don't do that, see? Uh, and that is an interesting study. For you who are parents, um, I really commend this thought to you. That the Scriptures never speak of punishment of the Lord's people. Chastening, yes. What's the difference? Punishment is retributive. You punish a criminal. It's, it's, there's vengeance in it. It's the, it's the arm of an, of an authority meeting out vengeance. But chastening is the correction of a child to make the child holy. Okay. Other qu yes, sir. Yeah, you're talking about tactics. I'm mentioning this tonight. Strategy is the overall thing. Okay, the tactics are what you do when you're in the store, or what you do when you go to McDonald's and they got a special on uh, their hamburgers, and uh, um, you really you're real hungry and you can't. You might as well take. Hey, might as well really take advantage of this special. So I'll buy six of them, right? That kind of a thing. That would that would be a tactic. Um, Attack these. Attack. Now, I want to be sure I understand your question, though. It's a tactic for when you're in the store or when you're at home in the cooking? Yeah, okay. Right. Okay, yeah, you have to eat. Okay. All right. All things in moderation. Period. I mean, I, I don't know how much more to say. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be trite about your question. But, but that's what I do. Um, and, and dietitians will tell you the same thing. I know in a health food store I go, it's interesting. I'll gab with the man and I'll say, you know, you're, you're just telling me exactly what the Bible says when it says in, on all things moderation, even though I don't know the address, it does say it in there, okay? So when, when you're tempted to go 
for the second portion, and you don't need it, just say no at that point. Okay? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And if you've got a lust for food, you've got to take, say, in Christ, what does it mean to say no to, to this particular thing? Um, I guess because, um, David, this is, uh, uh, you know, this is not particularly something I struggle with. Maybe I'm not scratching where some of you are, are itching. But the thing I would do is say, can I say in good conscience when I've done this meal, I did it in moderation? Can I also say when I did this, I did it in such a way that I didn't spurn God's good gift to me? Okay? When I did this, when I ate this, can I say I honestly did this to the glory of God? Or did I, did it making my, did I do it making my belly a God? So those, those are my tactics at every meal. When I'm in a store, it's different. My tactic is, am I being a good steward of the Lord's money? But see, that goes beyond the issue that you're dealing with. But, but however you're doing it, you want to bring a biblical principle or precept to bear on what you're doing so I can say whether, therefore, I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do it all to the glory of God. Okay. Other questions? Herman, I, will, I have my computer with a full concordance. And once I've got a few minutes that I can flip it on, I'll give you a list of texts. Okay? What's that? Uh, we'll, we'll temperance. Well, all right. We'll, we'll uh, let me let me look it up for you. Come up with a list of text. Yes, ma'am, Martha. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, good. So, oh, wait, so I'll give you a good one. This is one of my favorites. People will say today, "You want to know what evidence of the fruit of the spirit? The fruit of the spirit's evidence is you just let go. You just you just, you fall over backwards." You just let your mouth utter anything that comes in it. That's the fruit of the Spirit. You just freed up. You've heard that kind of thing, right? Yeah. What does Paul say the fruit of the Spirit is? The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It's exactly the opposite the fruit of the Spirit. When people say, I'm out of control, the Spirit's controlling. That's why for you men who are preachers, you know, in the pulpit, you wonder what anointing is. Anointing, remember, the Spirit is no more in control than when you are self-controlled in the pulpit. That also was one of the things that deeply convicted me when it came to preaching. It's not necessarily the work of the Spirit that you get real worked up in the pulpit. At every point, there's got to be that self-control. But that would be one, Herman. That's a good one. Yes, other questions? Yes, sir.
Yes. Okay. Yeah, Bruce, right? Yeah, okay. Um, let, me, let me break that question down into two parts. Because I know your first part wasn't a question, it's an assertion, but I do want to deal with it. And then the second is your question. The first is your assertion. The OPC, we're very strong Christians. If we really knew ourselves the way we ought to, Orthodox Presbyterians or not, we are incredibly weak Christians. Because the finest most knowledgeable, most disciplined Christians in the world are incredibly weak. That's why Jesus says, without me we can do nothing. And that is, it's very, very dangerous. And I know you didn't imply this, but we've got to really realize that if we think we are that strong, we're in big trouble. Okay? Big trouble. Um, I, that's why I love the fact that Paul says, when I'm weak, I'm what? I'm strong. And it is at the point that we feel our greatest impotence, that we are strongest in Christ. Let me give you an example. Any truly pious, godly saint will tell you he or she senses his or her strength more and more on a sickbed than they will when they're well. Nobody wants to be sick. But it's when we are helpless, really helpless, crying to the Lord for grace, we know the Lord's strength in us. Okay, so, so you know, we, need to, we need to be constantly, in light of the Word of God, assessing the issue of strength. Now, your second question, and I'm going to break it down into two parts, has to do with our conduct toward unbelievers in the use of things that can be sinful. Am I right? Okay, for example, use the issue of beer and wine. Now, I would respond to that, Bruce, in, in again, three ways. Number one, you can never violate your conscience. You must never violate your conscience. Uh, whatever is not of faith is sin. So when a person, I'm not saying this is your conviction, but if a person has a conviction that to drink a glass of wine or a glass of beer is wrong, that person should never violate conscience. Now, conscience can be changed and ought to be changed in light of the Word of God, but, but never violate conscience. Number two, remember that, as you put it before, we're never to be a stumbling block to someone else, but a stumbling block is not doing something someone else might dislike. It would be tempting someone else to sin. So, for example, if, and this is the common illustration, if we have people, as we do, we have, we have people that come to our home in Franklin Square and they have, they've been converted out of a life of drunkenness. We do not offer them a glass of wine. We don't have it. It's, it's not an issue. It's not something that we need because we don't want to tempt them. Now, in some cases, they might say it doesn't bother us or they don't even mind it, you know, and so forth. Okay, so, so that's, you've got that whole sphere of things and you're right. Remember, though, the defense is, is tempting someone else actually to sin. But there's a third thing, and I'm not saying you need to do this, but I do believe it is a very biblical response, even though a lot of people don't like to hear it. The Bible says wine makes glad the heart of man, and it's a good gift of God. And I believe it's a tremendous testimony to people, and I'm not using this as God is my witness, as a cloak of vice. I believe it's a tremendous testimony when you can say to an unbeliever, I believe I can enjoy this as one of God's good gifts, and my grief is that you enjoy it, but not as a gift of God. And indeed, you will even abuse it and abuse your body. And there is that approach, and that's done, and, and I don't think that has to be... Some people may use that as a cloak to do the wrong thing, and that's wrong. 
But I believe that's an eminently right way to, to look at things, Bruce. So now within that, you're going to have to play your game. Okay, never violate your conscience, never be a stumbling block, and but realize there are ways in which you can you can do that. And okay. Incidentally, you may. We've got. A, what time do we need to break? I thought I was thinking 5:15. Is that fair enough? Give me four minutes. Yeah, any of you need, if you need to get back to your rooms, I can understand it. But other questions? You're questioned out? Yes, oh, I'm sorry. Jolene. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. Right. I'm glad you do. I have a problem when people don't have a problem with using the Lord's name in vain, okay? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, well, okay. Now, now, again, you've asked a number of questions, okay? So, in, in that, Joel, let, let me make an overall comment, first of all. You didn't ask a number of questions, but I want to ask that last one is, is uh, you know, I don't want to seem like a self-righteous person, but you don't, it's not being necessarily being self-righteous when you speak to someone. So, let me, let me break it down into two questions. The use of the Lord's name in vain and dealing with that and dealing with others. But before it, uh, you prodded me to think of something. If you want, uh, listen, if you think this stuff is convicting, get the larger catechism on the Ten Commandments. All you need to do is read the larger, uh, larger catechism on commandment number nine. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And I think there's about 99 specifics with Scripture. If you want to continue to have your heart searched, go through that. And the and reason I thought of it, Jolene, is that the section, particularly in the larger catechism, on the use of God's name is absolutely magnificent. Okay? So I would urge you to study that. Um, now, your two questions. The scriptures teach that we ought not even use God's name lightly. And there's all kinds of illustrations that you can think of in the way the temple was used or abused and so on. And, and so... Um, we are right to have that conviction. So the larger catechism fleshes that out. And where people will often err is, is and I don't, I don't think in most cases they intend to do it, oh gosh, oh golly, oh gee, and those are all, we know from an unabridged dictionary, those are slang expressions for God's name. You can say, well, meaning is used, they didn't intend it. It's still not proper, it's still not seemly. Okay? So, so I would urge you, first thing, load your conscience with the with uh, particularly the larger catechisms material with the scripture references. But now, the second point. Don't neuter your ability to do godly exhortation by the devil's trick of saying, if I do it, I'm going to seem self-righteous. Okay? If, if I'm self-righteous in exhorting someone else, I may have done the right thing in the wrong way, but what I need to do is correct the way I did it. But that doesn't mean you don't seek to do it. What you want to do is realize you want to sound, sound you don't want to sound self-righteous. The first of all, the thing you know, you pluck the beam out of your own eye. Okay, Lord, I don't want to sound self-righteous. I want to be careful. I examine my own heart, and you pray for the person that you're going to speak with. And then, at a proper point, a word a word spoken in season, how good it is. Okay, it's, it's a word fitly spoken is as apples of gold in setting of silver. The right time and the right way. You say to whoever it is, and this is very, very important. I mean, you know what it's like. If somebody, you know, someone says, oh gosh, you say, well, there you go. You did it again using the Lord's name. I didn't use the Lord's name. And you've lost the battle already. 
just take them aside and say, you know, I've noticed the pattern of your using this expression. And, and I don't want to be picky. I don't want to be prudish. But the third commandment is we're not to take the Lord's name in vain. And you know, that really is what it is. You mean, I'm not saying you realize that's what it was. But, but really, I urge you to please be careful about, about just the use of that term. And a genuine Christian is going to appreciate that. Okay? Right. Incidentally, you know, I, I love it when, uh, when uh, Alan and, and Raleigh, you probably get this as well. Or if they know you're Christians, this is great. Um, I was in the barber shop one day. And uh, the, the barber, a dear Sicilian barber that I've had for many years, um, he, he happened to use the Lord's name in vain. He said, oh, he said, you know, I'm sorry. I, I forgot you were here. And I said, that's okay. The Lord's here all the time. So be careful with the way you use the Lord's name. So see, a wise, and I didn't say, oh, you be careful how you use the Lord's name. Say, wise, wise way to answer. Okay? Yeah, Alan. Yes, yeah, a very good point. Excellent. Uh, and even Abraham Kuyper in his preaching. Remember, preach Kuyper wasn't converted when he began his pastoral ministry. And there was a, there was a very dear, I don't know exactly the story, but an elderly woman in the church there who, who took Kuyper aside and, and basically said to him, I wonder if you know the power of the very things you're preaching. And God used that to convert him. So, uh, brothers and sisters, I cannot overstate to you the importance of exhortation and loving admonishment of brothers and sisters. Uh, you're enlightened in the spirit of Matthew 18:15, doing what God tells you to do in the right way is I am convinced as powerful in the realm of the believer in the general office as preaching is in the realm of the special office. I have been, uh, quite honestly, I have been probably more affected by an individual exhortation a brother or sister has given to me than I have been by many sermons. And I, I esteem preaching. and I'm not deprecating preaching. But, but Jolene, that's, I appreciate you bringing that up. That's a way we, we grow in grace. What did Paul said? I know that you are mature, that you're able to admonish one another. And again, the text in Hebrews, exhort one another daily as long as it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I know if someone takes me aside, not that I like it, if someone takes me aside, often it's one of my fellow elders, because they have a, more, a greater comfort level with me than others do. They bring something up, and they'll say, Pastor, I don't want to make a big deal about it, but I've noticed this, and I just don't think this is seemly. I'm not exactly saying it's wrong, but I don't think in light of the Word of God it's quite proper. I thank God for that, because it reminds me to be careful and stay on the narrow way. I think we best break so you all can get to your, maybe stretch a little bit and use a muscle other than the one back here. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, how good and how blessed it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. Lord, thank you so much that while you save us individually, uh, you also set the solitary in families. And we thank you that as we see the little children here, as we fellowship together as brother and sister in Christ. We do it as those who are really one family in the Lord Jesus. Well, Father, teach us that even as in our earthly biological families, we do what is needful to see holiness cultivated in each member. So in the church, we do what is needful to see holiness cultivated in each member. 
But Lord, remind us as we do it and as we wrestle with these things and as we sometimes fall flat on our faces and sometimes err and sin, remind us, our Lord, that even through all of that, uh, that all that we do is of grace and remind us even in all of our failings that the Lord Jesus is merciful to us in our transgressions. And now dismiss us with your blessing. We pray that anything said or done that would be contrary to your word would be blown far away from us. But those things that are faithful to the word of God we pray would be impressed upon us for our benefit in this life and in eternity. For Jesus' sake, amen.